Welcome to PwC's Next in Health podcast. I'm Ben Isger, leader of PwC's Health Research Institute. And today we have Trina Tsideros with us, who leads HRI's Regulatory Center. Welcome, Trina. Thanks so much, Ben. Great to be here. We've got a lot of things to cover today, so let's jump right in. And I think first up on the list is the season and what's happening with the case count out there as we are well into fall now. Yeah, I think I think we can say at this point that the fall surge is here. We're seeing record high case counts in states like Wisconsin, North Dakota, Utah, and Wyoming. We're seeing nationwide case counts going up, hospitalizations going up. Right now, we're sort of in the middle of October, and the, the deaths are not surging yet, but we wouldn't expect that yet. That sort of is a lagging indicator following hospitalizations and cases going up. Every region is seeing more cases per million people, even the Northeast, which had been quiet for quite a long time. We're seeing 41 states reporting increases in people hospitalized with COVID-19 mid-October. You know, on, on any given day, we're seeing more than 30,000 people in the hospital in the U.S. with COVID-19. And some states are seeing huge increases over September, you know, 202% increase in Wisconsin and people hospitalized by mid-October compared to September. You know, these big surges, and that's sort of what has been predicted and, and what's been feared by public health experts all along. Everyone's looking to the fall. In Wisconsin in particular, if you look at what's going on there, they are finding their hospitals in danger of reaching capacity you know, with upwards of 80% or more beds and ICU beds occupied. Wisconsin's actually opening up a 530-bed field hospital near Milwaukee because of this. And so we're seeing these, these cases surge, and, and that's going on all over the country. So yeah, that's what we're seeing. And, and that's not, it's not really unexpected. Everyone, if you look at the 1918 influenza pandemic, the fall was much worse than the summer and the spring. And respiratory illnesses in general are worse in the, in the fall and the winter. And so this just is following that same course, it appears. So I guess I guess it brings up the question that has been asked before, and that is, is SARS-CoV-2 seasonal? And it, you seem to be saying, yes, there is a seasonality to it. Is, is that right? Or, or how should we look at it? Because the virus and the illness is new, we don't really know, right? So, so there is a lot of questions around this. But if you listen to folks who are watching this carefully, people like Dr. Michael Minna at Harvard and other researchers who look at seasonality, they say that if you look at viruses, coronaviruses in general, they are seasonal. There are quote-unquote sister viruses to SARS-CoV-2 like SARS-CoV and a group of coronaviruses that cause the common cold. And if you look at how those behave, coronavirus season is November, December, and January. That's when infections with those viruses surge significantly. There's a great heat map that some researchers put together of seasonal coronaviruses. So that's not SARS-CoV-2. These are the common cold ones influenza virus and RSV. And what they did was they looked at infections in each month of the year by latitude. And they looked at what different researchers, they kind of plotted this by latitude, starting a little bit below the equator and going north 
And what you see clearly is that for the latitudes that the United States sits in, especially as you go north, coronaviruses, seasonal coronaviruses, influenza, and RSV bloom at the end of the year in December and at the beginning of the year in January and February and start fading out in March and April, fade out completely over the summer. And so even though we don't know what SARS-CoV-2 will do, we look at these close cousins of it and we look at other respiratory viruses. This is what we see. Of course, there are things that make us think maybe things will be different, like we don't wear masks in the United States you know, during influenza season, typically. And so all of the mitigation measures that we're doing could have a significant impact. It's possible that some of the blooming over the winter is due to the fact that a lot of us have built up immunity to some of these or the vaccine for the flu vaccine helps. And so what the bloom over the winter is, is spread by you know, children who do not have that immunity yet, perhaps. So there are other factors that go into this, these heat maps and these studies of other coronaviruses and when they uh, bloom is not necessarily our fate with this one, but it does give public health researchers pause to look at the fact that really it's a, a winter kind of spread that happens typically with similar types of viruses. Well, let's switch over to demographics, which is something we've been looking at for the past several months and, and really who and, and which groups are being most affected by the coronavirus. And one of the issues that keeps coming up in the discussions, in the debate is around the effect on children and young people mm -hmm. and how dangerous this can be or maybe not be to, to young people and children. I think a recent study came out that shed some more light on that. Could you read us into that? Yeah, there is this sense that the young you know, have little to worry about with COVID-19. And so recently, some researchers published a study in JAMA that looked at young adults age 18 to 34 hospitalized with COVID-19. And these were folks that were hospitalized between April 1st and June 30th, the early part of the pandemic. So we'll keep that in mind that that improvements in treatment could mean that the outcomes for these young adults might be different at this time period. But, you know, if we're looking at thousands and thousands of discharges and hospitalizations during this period, these researchers said, you know, what happened to those 18 to 34-year-olds who were hospitalized during that period? And what they found out was that even though these young adults did not do as poorly as much older Americans, they still had quite a lot of difficulty. Of the young adults hospitalized during that time, 21% required intensive care, 10% required mechanical ventilation, 3% were discharged to a post-acute care facility, so were debilitated enough coming out of their hospitalization that they needed care afterwards, and 2.7% of them died. And I think that this is where, you know, that is that is a quite a high percent for someone so young. So the message, I think, is that we shouldn't assume that COVID-19 is essentially harmless in young adults, and especially for young adults with comorbidities, the same comorbidities that 
you know, are associated with bad outcomes for older adults. That's true of young adults too. Morbid obesity, hypertension, diabetes, all of those are associated with the greater risk of adverse events for hospitalized COVID-19 patients who are young. The other thing that was that was sort of popped out at me from the study was that sort of the same story we've heard all through the pandemic that more than half of the patients that required hospitalization, these young adults, were Black or Hispanic. And this is consistent with what we've been hearing, the sort of disproportionate impact on Americans who are Black and Hispanic. And so I think this is just more pieces to that puzzle and just shows the disproportionate impact. It is a sobering reminder of the need to take precaution and that really no demographic is immune to this, shall we say. But I do want to turn to something we don't often get a lot of news about, and that is good news. And I think a lot of people and and industry leaders and and consumers walking around the streets, they feel like there's so much out of their control when it comes to the pandemic. But actually, there are some things that are, are starting to prove to work. And I was hoping you could share some of that good news with us. Yeah, yeah. So some good news, like you said, Ben, which seems like it's a precious commodity. So let's talk about it. So Arizona is a fantastic example of how effective non-pharmaceutical interventions, which is all the stuff we're super familiar with, masking, social distancing, limiting gatherings, especially indoor gatherings, all of these measures, they appear to work really well. And so you can look at Arizona as a great case example. And the CDC did just that recently in their MMWR report. So if you look at sort of what happened in Arizona, you find that they were sort of moving along with very few cases up until March 30th, when they had a stay-at-home order put in place. And then they began to reopen April 29th to May 11th, sort of a phased reopening limitations on retail, cosmetologists, barbers, dine-in services. On May 15th, the stay-at-home order was lifted and all the closures expired. And so people were free to sort of go about business as per usual. And what happened soon after that was cases began to skyrocket. And we watched this happen over the summer. So June, cases are skyrocketing, peaks up around June 29th. And so what happened was uh, mid-June, as they saw the skyrocketing case count and hospitalizations, local officials were given the power to mandate and enforce the wearing of masks. And then officials began to limit public events, close bars, gyms, movie theaters, water parks, businesses like that around June 29th. And soon enough, cases began to fall. And July 9th, they reduced the restaurant dining capacity. So started pushing social distancing, you know, limiting how many people could eat indoors at restaurants. And the cases began to fall again. And they came down dramatically. It was like a, like a peak of a mountain and then falling down a mountain. And that is just a, the clearest, clearest example of how effective these measures can be in pushing cases, hospitalizations, and of course, deaths down again. And so it's it's not true that sort of we're, we're powerless at all. It's clear that these measures have quite a dramatic effect. Keeping on that theme of maybe a little bit of positive news, from time to time, we try to give a update on therapeutics, sometimes vaccines as well, but today therapeutics, kind of science for non-science majors. 
Could you hit a couple of highlights in our last segment here on what's the latest on therapeutics? Yeah. So there is some good news coming out of the pharmaceutical world on treating COVID-19. And so the latest news is that we have two drug antibody regimens that have been submitted for emergency use authorizations to the FDA. And that could happen any day now. And both of these are ones that, that have shown in studies, relatively small studies, to be helpful in treating COVID-19. So this is very good news and could result in some more arrows in our quiver, so to speak. We also found out that we, we also got some new data on remdesivir. And so we got some data from a phase three trial of that therapy. And that trial found a five-day faster recovery for patients treated with remdesivir versus a placebo. So that's some good news. Another sort of boost for that therapy in terms of being helpful for patients in the hospital with COVID-19. And then we also received more confirmation that hydroxychloroquine is not useful. So we got the... New England Journal of Medicine publication of phase three recovery trial data looking at patients in the hospital treated with hydroxychloroquine versus placebo. Hydroxychloroquine did not have an effect on mortality and actually uh, appeared to be a little bit, you know, linked with adverse events. And so again, that therapy, we've seen the use of it fall dramatically in hospitals. Doctors aren't prescribing this very much anymore, and we are getting more reason to believe that that is a good idea. But yeah, so we're getting slowly, slowly, we're getting more data on drugs that are being used, which is good because physicians can make better decisions with those data. And also a few more therapies possibly coming down the pike that could be helpful for, for patients who are suffering with COVID-19. It's always good to end with a little bit of positive news. I know we, we started out today's podcast with the fall surge and, and some of the realities around that and, and some of the threats to younger people, but there are things that we can do. And I think your segment on non-pharmaceutical interventions is something we can all take to heart and masking and social distancing and the importance of that. And then of course, innovation and science always ever coming closer to the rescue with with more therapeutics that are helping out. So Trina, a lot in the last 15 minutes, and we thank you for bringing all of those insights to us today. Yeah, my pleasure. If you want a deeper dive on anything that we've talked about, please come see us at pwc.com forward slash HRI. We have deep dive reports on many issues in terms of health industry trends, policy issues, and other things happening with the pandemic. We also have a link where you can sign up to our weekly newsletter. And with that, we'll end Next in Health podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.